Good afternoon. It's, uh, it's great to be here. The topic is intense, but it's, it's meant to edify and strengthen, and so I trust God will do so by the end of our time, not only today, but in the weeks ahead, that we will have a steely backbone for sure. But would you pray with me to, uh, before we dive into this, please? Father, we praise you for this day. We thank you for the privilege of having your word in our native tongue, that we can read the words of the Almighty, words powerful enough to produce all that we see out of nothing, words that bring life to death and can sustain us to the end and deliver us to glory. We thank you, Father, for this word. As we open this book and look at the many passages that deal with suffering, I ask that you would illumine our minds and hearts. You would humble us before them and you would strengthen us. And you would give us a greater love and trust in the Lord Jesus as a result. So bless us now, Father. We need you to teach us and to feed us. We'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is, it's already been stated, we begin a study on the topic of suffering. Most likely not the average Christian's top ten of favorites, but it's, uh, it's a part of each one's life. And it should be, and I hope by the end of our time together, it will be one of our favorites because it is an amazing topic, it's an amazing truth. And understanding what it is that is suffering, why it is, what is its purpose, how does it play in each of our lives, how are we to respond to suffering when it comes upon us. A biblical understanding of suffering is essential to enduring suffering in a manner worthy of his name. We must have this understanding. As the children of God, we care about our Father's reputation, our Father in heaven, and we care about honoring Him with our lives, and so we seek to honor Him in our living. We seek to honor Him in our suffering, and may I say we seek to honor Him in our dying. A Christian desires to live well, to suffer well, and to die well. 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul writes, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And this would include certainly how we endure suffering. Paul says in Philippians 1.20 that his hope in his life, in his suffering, he says there that Christ, this is his hope, that Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, whether we, when living is Christ, when He, Christ, defines our reality, He de- directs our life, our passions, and desires, He's the object of our goals. When we seek to please Him in everything in our lives, to honor Him with our life, to make Him known, this would include in our sufferings. When that's a reality, then dying is gain. Because it is better than living here, because upon death we are with Christ. And Paul says that is very much better. 
very much better. Now, I'm not here to speak about death primarily, but I'm not here to avoid it either. Who else can embrace death as, like a Christian? And to avoid it as some, some plague is, is wrong because because of the resurrection, we are triumphant in death. Death can no longer hold me. Death, where is your sting, right? The grave is but a stairway to glory, you see. So who better to talk about death than those who are born again and forgiven of their sin? The child of God is the only one on the planet who can rightly embrace death with joy and exhilaration because of the promise of God. The rest of the world is trusting in lies and nonsense at best. So, I don't want this to be a downer. Because it's not a downer. And death should not be a downer any more than suffering should be a downer. So my goal for these next few weeks is not only to inform us about suffering, but to stir our hearts for a greater love for God and a greater trust in Him so that we would live in a manner worthy of His name. And why do I choose the topic of suffering? As, as Max had already mentioned before, it is a reality in our life. We all have suffered, we all will suffer, and perhaps all of us at some degree are suffering at the moment. There is suffering in this planet. There is suffering in this world. And so why do I choose this topic? A couple things. Because of that reality that everyone will suffer. And there's two categories of sufferings that we're going to look at and blast through in these next few weeks. But one would be general suffering that's characterized, that is um, experienced by every human on the planet. We'll call that general suffering. And then specific suffering is for those who are Christians. Suffering that is specifically, uniquely, because you are a follower of Jesus Christ. There are two classes of suffering. So when we speak of suffering, it, it's the broad stroke of, of suffering, generally sicknesses and such. And then there's suffering that's specifically connected to being a follower of Jesus Christ. Okay. So this topic... I chose it upon, as I thought through the three weeks that we have this window, that I wanted to address this. I did want to, and we will look at general suffering, but primarily the second half of today and the rest of the weeks, we're going to look at uniquely suffering as Christians. Okay? Now, why do I choose that? Because looking out over the horizon of our, of our culture, looking out over our society, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet, but I think I can discern the times. Jesus says, look at the sky. You should be able to discern a storm's coming. And, and he rebuked him for not being able to discern the times, but you can, re, you can discern the weather. We can discern the times if you pay attention. Our country has never experienced persecution we have been uniquely set aside of all previous generations before us as Christians. We have been the favored class on, in this country. It, it was a time when I was a kid, you, were not, you probably were not trusted if you didn't go to church. It didn't matter what church, but you were not trusted. Nowadays, you are hated and despised if you even describe a church, if you even mention Christ. 
the winds of change are coming. And I, and I don't want to spend all this time on this, but why did I choose this topic? Is looking out over our horizon, looking at our culture, and looking at the intensity of how the hatred begins to grow. For instance, how many conservative talk hosts, talk radio people are allowed to speak on college campuses? Now, they're not Christians, but they're conservative. But how many get run out of UC Berkeley? How many get run out of down in Georgia? They run them out of schools in Georgia and all across our land. People cannot go and openly speak their opinion. Well, where else could the opinions be spoken but on university campuses? Now it's a dangerous place for a contrary opinion to the radical leftist agenda. It's not a political statement. I'm not meaning to be political here. I'm just looking out over the horizon, looking at our culture. How radical are those, for instance, think of this, certain cultural things that are before us. Abortion. Okay, it's been with us since 72 and before, but legalized in 72, 73. How intense does that movement get when you oppose that? You are being accused of suppressing women, except the little woman who's in the womb, perhaps, but how about homosexuality? When you don't agree with the cultural's agenda, aren't you see as oppressive of their expression of who they are? How about transgender? When you call it child mutilation, you're in danger, because that's exactly what it is. But what if how intense are those who promote that? And they see you as opposition. They see you as enemy. How many, how many professing Christian churches, mainline denominations, fly the rainbow flag and, and, the, and promote transgender and are pro-abortion? But you and I, when we say the truth against that, we will then incur the ire and an intense rage that I don't think I've ever seen in our country. The intensity of the anger and the rage against the truth I don't think has ever been seen here. Okay? Um, the ferocity. And what is, what is this all, what am I saying here as I look out? Why am I moved to talk about suffering? Is that when you and I are going to be faithful to Jesus Christ, to speak what he says in his word about every one of those issues and everything else it addresses, when you and I faithfully speak, you will be singled out as an enemy of the populace. You will be sorted out. You will be targeted. You will be hated, minimalized, marginalized and set aside. So my hope here is to prepare us for that day to not compromise, to not close our mouths, to, don't, to not hide in the weeds, but sit on the rooftops and to speak Christ's name and to speak his truth. Abortion's murder. Life begins at conception. Homosexuality is a gross perversion of the original design. Transgender is mutilating children, and you cannot choose your gender. It's assigned to you a conception. Are we bold enough to say that in the name of Jesus Christ? Not to the hatred of them, but to speak the truth so that God might use it to convert them. You see, this is what has exercised my spirit and my soul and why I want to address this 
from a Christian perspective because I, again, I don't want to be alarming in, in, in any of that, but I think in just looking out over the horizon, we need to be prepared for persecution like we've never seen before. Praise God. Praise God. So this is why I choose this topic. I want to frame it up. We've got three weeks. I want to frame this topic up in three broad boxes. In my mind, I picture a big old box. The first box is this week, the reality of suffering. Next week is the role of suffering. Third week, the box will be the response to suffering. We will take each box each week and fill it with as much biblical truth as time will allow. And by the end of our time, we will have a greater awe of God we will have our hearts set aflame for the glory of God. We will have a steely backbone of faith that will unflinchingly embrace the events of providence that God brings our way. The entire Bible is at our disposal, but we will use as a hub and we'll come in and out of 1 Peter. So if you would turn to 1 Peter, please. I want to begin in chapter 1, 1 Peter. Again, this is a topical, so we're going to bounce in and out, and I trust I will do this justice. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, I want to begin, if we're to live in a manner worthy of his name, there's, some, there's a truth that we need to be certain of, and that's the security of our salvation. We need to be assured that our salvation is secure in Christ, that it's not going anywhere, no matter the persecution that comes against you. And that's where Peter starts in chapter 1. First Peter is written by the Apostle Peter. Probably the year 64 to 67 is the understood time period. That's significant because in the year of 64 in the summer, Nero burned Rome to the ground to make room for more modern buildings. But it kind of got away from him and it burned the good citizens too. He, just, he started the fire in the, the slave quarters. The fire took off, spread into good people's homes, and the ire of the populace of Rome raised up. And Nero, to avoid all the hatred of his people, deflected all that hatred to the Christians and blamed it on them. He must have been a good communicator because they bought it. <laughs> right? And that's in Rome. And that, 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 uh, that hatred and hostility spreads out into the region of 1 Peter to whom he's writing, which is modern-day Turkey. Now, the... What Nero's famous for in, in burning Christians is human candles to light his garden and all that stuff hasn't happened yet at the writing of 1 Peter. It's the precursor. 1 Peter, the, the animosities are rising. You see the word revile and blaspheme used a lot in 1 Peter. So what is being seen in 1 Peter is the population's attitude of hostility against the Christians. Peter's writing to these Christians to show them how to live victoriously for Christ in the midst of a hostile world. And that's 1 Peter. And that fits our time perfectly. We need help to live victoriously for Christ in a world that is growing in its hostility to the truth to Christians. So this is 1 Peter. 1 Peter then, chapter 1, he starts, and I just want to blast through verses 3, 4, and 5. Focus your attention, and then we'll move on. But look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So God in his sovereignty caused us to be born again. Verse 4, notice he, he talks about how secure things are, 4 and 5, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, doesn't rot, undefiled, it can't be ruined, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven specifically for you, verse 4. And then verse 5, please, who are protected by the power of God, that's pretty powerful, through faith, that's the channel we receive this protection for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time, that is in the second coming when Christ comes, he will reveal the fullness of the salvation he has given to us when we believed. But I want to get from this, first and foremost, what Peter's saying here before he launches into suffering is your security, your eternal security, your salvation is fixed. It's based on Christ Jesus. It's based on the sovereignty of God. He caused you to be born again. He will keep you born again. He will keep you in the family. He will keep you protected. Okay? So to live victoriously for Jesus Christ... The first thing we need to be certain of is the security of our salvation. You cannot be lost. You're not going to fall away. Because that would be a blight on the name and the promises of Jesus. Who says in John 10, no one can snatch you from the Father's hand or his hand. Amen? Amen. So... To get that fixed in your mind. If you're not settled on that, you need to get settled on that. You need to get right with Jesus Christ. You need to be settled on that doctrine of the preservation of the saints. Perseverance of faith. Eternal security. And the assurance that comes from that. Because when persecution comes against you for your faith in Christ, if you're not settled on preservation, perseverance, you're going to be rocked. So Peter starts there. He reminds them, hey, you, verse 5, are protected by the power of God. Okay? Now, verse 6 is the first mention here of trials at the end of verse 6. In this, you greatly rejoice even now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials. Okay? Now, now trouble's being mentioned. You're secure in verse 5. Verse 6 is the mention now of trials, tribulation, suffering. We have Hard times. Now I want to back up and look at our topic from the mountaintop now. Okay, Pull off from verse Peter there. And I want to now look at this idea. Now that we're settled on our, the security of our salvation, now we want to look at the reality of suffering and why we should not be surprised, as you read earlier in verse 12 of chapter 4. So the reality of suffering. Now, I have way too many verses and too little time, but I will do my best. So uh, screw your hat down tight, right, and hang on because let your horse run fast, okay? The reality of suffering, okay? To honor God in our lives, we must understand this basic truth, beloved, that there is suffering in this life. I don't think anybody here is going to deny that. You will suffer in this life, and perhaps you are at this moment. Suffering. Now, what is suffering? What do we mean by suffering? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's the basic idea, the meaning of it is something you experience. In the word itself, it, it has this, something that it experienced. It's a broad term, okay? 
It has a passive idea. In other words, it's what we receive. It is the, it's experiencing something from the outside of us that is usually unpleasant. It's not good. We see it as evil. It's bad. It's trouble. That's suffering, okay? It's used in sentences like this to suffer shame, to suffer an illness, even to suffer death. It's used in that way, okay? So it's something you receive. It's something you're passive in your experiencing from the outside. Synonyms for this could be hardship, distress, uh, misery, adversity, affliction, tribulation, persecution. All those fit under that broad category. It's associated with pain, both physical and mental. Mental as well. And in John 16, Jesus says, In this world you have tribulation. This world is characterized by tribulation, by sufferings, afflictions. Now, no one in this life on this planet is exempt from suffering. Would you agree with that? Good. <laughs> There's some who don't, but God has made no such promises to anyone in this life that they would not experience trials. Okay? No one. Now, why in this life... Why is this life filled with trouble, adversity, and suffering? Why is that a reality? Well, of course, it's because of sin. It's because of the fall. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve believed Satan's lie and rebelled against God's good, gracious, loving, providing rule. And as a result, pain and suffering has come into this world, into this life. He said to the woman, just specifically, right? I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That's the beginning of suffering right there. Right? Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Toil and sweat. That's interesting because it wasn't meant to be that way before the fall. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, which is, you don't have to plant those. You ever notice that in your garden? If you just left it fallow, come back in a week, that sucker's full of weeds. How'd it get there? Right? It's because of this curse, because of the fall. And those are battles, those are troubles, that's part of sufferings and trials and tribulations. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken. For you are dust, he says to Adam, and to dust you shall return. Now, fascinating. Suffering is in this world because of the fall. Romans 5, 12 says that sin entered in through the first Adam. Sin entered into all of creation through that event in Genesis 3. With sin came death. Death spread to all men because all men sinned. Okay? Sin is rebellion. And it, in its rebellion, sin's nature, it is a moral corruption. It is a moral corruption and it's expressed in a physical corruption. My glasses is because of sin. My eyes are failing. My hair is not quite as pretty as it once was. And the wrinkles are roadmaps to somewheres, right? <laughs> as a result of the fall, as a result of this corruption, okay, 
Think about it. There's sickness. There's disease in this life. There's both physical and mental diseases. There are cancers galore. There's blindness, autism, brain tumors, heart attacks, stillborns, and you fill in the blanks. Those are sufferings. There are evildoers who cause suffering for others. You and I often suffer because of the sin of other people. And people sometimes suffer because of our sin against other people, right? The first sin recorded after the fall was what? Cain killed Abel. Murder is the first sin recorded as a result of the corruption. Well, that, I think that probably caused Eve some suffering and probably Papa too, right? It's because of sin. There are wars. And the result of wars, think of Ukraine, just living color, Palestine, Gaza. People are suffering immensely because of wars. It's a fallen planet. Even the rest of creation groans under the corruption of sin. Think of this. Creation as a whole is under the curse and corruption and is under the oppression of sin, and it groans waiting for the redemption of Christians, for the freedom that comes with the sons of God when they are revealed in the second coming in the eternal state. Creation does not do what pre-fall it was intended to do. There's death and decay and danger. Think of this. Animals cause suffering. Grizzle bears eat you, sharks bite your leg off, and horses kick you in the belly button. You know, why do they do that? It's because of sin. Have you ever thought about, like Isaiah 11, I think it is, in the millennial kingdom, the lion lays with the lamb? That's a radical change. That's probably how it was before the fall, you see. But suffering comes because of the fall. The ground, the thorns and the thistles. How about, how about earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes and blizzards and floods and fires and famines? That's all cause, that's suffering involved in that, isn't there? There's death and dying and destruction. It's, it's a fallen planet and it's dangerous. It's because of sin. It's because of sin. Romans 8, 20 says, for the creation was subjected to futility. Now these happen, these events, don't they? Happen to the rich, they happen to the poor, they happen to the powerful, they happen to the weak, they happen to believers, they happen to unbelievers. They happen to those who we call good folks, they happen to those who we call evil folks. It's common, it's general, it's the suffering of this life because of sin. Luke, listen to Luke 13, 1 through 3. This is fascinating. Jesus speaking here, Luke 13, 1 through 3. Now on the same occasion there were some present, some people present, who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. That wasn't a good thing. Okay. Jesus said to them, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all of the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? Now he says that because the implied answer before he's challenging them would be, yes, those guys must be really bad sinners because they experienced a really bad thing. Jesus says, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. It's fascinating. You see, we're all as guilty as those people who experience that, that terrible thing Jesus is saying. And are you thinking because something bad happened to them like that, that they must be terrible sinners? Jesus says, no. But you better repent or you'll be treated the same way, right? 
So suffering comes about by just creation under the curse. We have the sin corruption principle that is in all of creation. We have people committing sin against others. And we have creation that is dangerous and, and is under the, 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 the curse. And so this is a dangerous place to live it's, it's, it's God's mercy and grace that any of us are still breathing here, frankly. And the question that comes to my mind before I even move on any farther is, why am I not suffering more than I am? It's because of the mercy of God. Because there, you ever heard the saying, there go I but for the grace of God? Now, we like the little mantra and we like to say that, but do we believe that, you see? It's amazing. Now, why is there suffering? We just mentioned there's something to add to this. Satan rules this world. He's called the God of this age, the God of this world. The devil is real. He wants you to think he's not, and he wants others to think he's more important than he is, but he is real. He's the archenemy of God. He's been given temporary dominion over this world as the evil one. Now listen, he rules with malicious intent always. He seeks to kill and destroy and do as much harm as possible. So you have a fallen planet under what, all that corruption, and then you add to it this wicked ruler. John, 1 John 5, 19 says it like this, We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies under the, his sway, his power. 2 Timothy 2.26 says it like this, even more graphic, and that they may come... Uh, unbelievers may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. To do his will. And held captive has this idea like hostages in Gaza. Satan has taken hostage some and holds them to do according to his will. You add to that the, the fall and the corruption and sin's principle and, and sin nature. I mean, is any wonder they're suffering? Amazing. An example of his work, Satan's work. Listen to Luke 13, please. Verse 11. Just listen to this. There was a woman who for 18 years, remember who's writing this, Dr. Luke. He's a, he's a physician. So he has fascinating takes on things. There was a woman who for 18 years had a sickness caused by a spirit. She was bent double and could not straighten up at all. That's Luke 13, 11. He goes on to just say in, in Luke 13, 16, listen, and this woman, whom Jesus healed, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day, he asked. My point is this. I'm, I... I I can't say that all sicknesses is a direct result to Satan and an evil spirit's attack, but I can at least say this person had, was under satanic bondage that caused her to double over physically in sickness. Do you think she suffered? Of course she did. She suffered immensely. And this suffering that she's suffering here is not because of her sin in any way. It's not mentioned there. It's because Satan was allowed to bind her in that fashion. So suffering, please, the reality of suffering is because of the fall. Sin has come in and it is, it is corrupted that which God has created. Every creature is corrupted. 
Creation groans waiting for our full redemption. Man is under sin. Man is, has a sin nature. Man does evil towards each other. The creation is, is dangerous with all the weather and such, even the animals. And then you add to it Satan and his malicious intents, and he's able to do these kinds of things. And then you add to that God is sovereign over all creation. Now listen to this. Suffering is a reality because of what we just said, but all of that, the corruption of creation and the sinful acts of others and the dominion of the evil one is under the dominion of God, the ultimate dominion of God. Why is there suffering? Listen to Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed. That's a present tense. It's always revealed. From heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The wrath of God is presently being revealed to us as we look out over the, over the globe. All the horrendous acts the wars and the, and the hurricanes and tornadoes, all of that is the wrath of God. Now get this, get this, please. There is a righteous indignation that is in operation in the everyday life of this rebel planet. Because of his righteous character, God is expressing his wrath, okay? Now, think of some examples Genesis 6, because of the wickedness of man and the corruption on the planet, God sent a flood. That was his wrath. That was his judgment. He spared eight out of mercy. He destroyed the rest. Think of Sodom and Gomorrah, Genesis 19, just as an expression of God's wrath and the suffering that came about from that. Think of Egypt and in, in the, the deliverance of Israel the plagues that came against Egypt. He, he utterly destroyed the most powerful nation on the planet to show his might and his strength and his love for Israel. That's pretty cool. Think of what he did to Nineveh after Jonah. Right, hundred years after Jonah, the message that Jonah wished he would have preached, Right, he went and made a parking lot and turned it into glass. So much did he do that that they didn't find Nineveh until the middle of the 18th century. Almost 1,200 years, they thought Nineveh was just some, in someone's mind because they couldn't find any archaeology to prove that it existed. But God eradicated it out of judgment, out of righteous indignation. Think of the judgment on Israel. He removed Israel from their land. He destroyed Jerusalem because of their rebellion. All of the suffering that happened there, there's suffering happening there. It's under the sovereignty of God. It's under the righteousness and the sovereignty of God. He controls that. Okay? But at the same time, beloved, please, there's, there's temporal judgments every day that we see, but there's also mercy in the midst of this. Where God withholds that which is rightly deserved, he does good to those who do evil. 
Matthew 5.45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, who causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain now on the righteous and the unrighteous. This righteous God, who has indignation every day, also chooses to be merciful. The breath you just took is a gift from God, you know. And God has control over it all. But even in spite of all of the, of the fall and man's sin and corruption and creation's upheaval and Satan's evil rule, God controls it all. Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Nebuchadnezzar's testimony is awesome. One of my favorite verses, Daniel 4.35. This is Nebuchadnezzar after he was converted and brought to his right mind. Remember, he grazed grass for seven years. And when God brought him back to his right thinking, this is what he says in Daniel 4.35. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. But he, God, does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? God controls all of this. Why is there suffering? Because of the fall, sin's corruption, the devil's malicious intent, and the righteous rule and indignation and sovereignty of God. Okay? So the free acts of sinful men and devils and the suffering they cause are all under God's ultimate rule for his purpose. Trials and tribulations and sufferings come upon us according to his design. Okay? Now, I just have to parentheses. There are troubles that come upon us directly related to sinful acts. For instance, if you smoke four packs a day, it's likely you might get cancer. Right? But it's not guaranteed because I know guys that did <laughs> and died from cirrhosis of the liver. <laughs> right? And not because they like to drink more than smoke, but they smoked a lot. Right? But you know what I'm saying? Sometimes there is this direct relation. And we can say, ah, it's because of that this happened. But you can't look at somebody just like when Jesus says, you think the Galileans were worse sinners. You cannot look at someone and say, oh, he must be a terrible sinner because look at all the trouble he has. Because right? that's what they thought about Jesus Christ. You're the son of God and you're hanging on the tree? <laughs> no. Don't you know those that God hates hang on trees? Not his son. You see, so all this to say, think of this. Think of this, please. Do God's children suffer loss? Yeah. Do they get sick and die? Do they suffer wounds of war? Do they die in combat? Do they die in car wrecks? Yes. Now think of this. Could God have stopped it? I hope we say yes, because he is omnipotent. Could he have stopped it? That's a rhetorical question. Yes, of course. He could have stopped it. He's omnipotent, but he didn't. So in his good and glorious wisdom, he had a different purpose. So the question comes, do we trust him? Him. Do we love him? Do we love him enough? This sounds kind of crazy, but listen. Do we love him enough to allow him to have his way? 
Or do we resent that? These are challenging questions depending on the extent of your suffering. Amen? And people have, Christian people have suffered immensely throughout the ages. The most evil act in history, the crucifixion of the innocent Son of God. Think with me now, as you brought up last week so wonderfully. Think of the most evil act in the history of the world is the crucifixion of Jesus Christ because he's the only truly innocent person who's ever been mistreated. Okay? And yet, that was not against the will of God. Nor was it against the free acts of sinners. It was designed to bring the greatest good, was it not? Yes, it was. Now listen to this. Acts 2.23. This man, Jesus Christ, delivered over, this is Peter preaching, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So you see the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility side by side. And both do not counteract the other. I don't understand that fully. I just know what it says. And I try to believe it. Right? That God is absolutely sovereign in these things, but we're responsible. So he says, Christ was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. That means it's God's will that Christ be nailed to a cross. But you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You're responsible for doing it. Acts 4.28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur, referring to the crucifixion of Christ. Luke 22.22, 22, for indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined before the cross, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Judas, was it God's will that his son suffer at the hands of sinful men? Yes. Is it ever God's will that his children suffer? Yes. Well, in the weeks to come, we'll examine more of the role and purpose of suffering, but we'll just leave that there. So the suffering then coming off of this ledge, a little, this mountain, and coming down a little bit, a little more narrow, God uses suffering... He can keep us from it. He can spare you. And he can bring it upon us as he determines. Suffering is a reality, but we are not subject to random acts of violence. But our loving God governs it all for our good and for his glory. For our good and for his glory. As Romans 8.28 would tell us, God works out all things together for our good to those who love him who are called according to his purpose. Okay? And you don't have to be a Greek scholar to understand what all things means. <laughs> that means everything that comes into your life, believer, is filtered and governed and massaged by the loving hands of your father to accomplish the good purpose he's predetermined to accomplish. The evil acts of men, which indeed are evil, cannot thwart ultimately 
the will of God in your life. And if we read Romans 8, and we won't today, but next week, we'll look at what is the ultimate goal in that context, what's the ultimate good. I think we could say is to be conformed to the image of his son, to be like Christ. The evil acts of others does not hinder that. It assists that because God is so sovereign. Dude. The reality of suffering. Think of this now. Suffering and the believer. Joseph. Genesis 50, 20. You remember Joseph. Thrown in a pit. Sold into slavery. And think about it. His sons went back and told the father that his boy was dead. They caused tremendous suffering and grief to an old man. Right? The sinful acts of another. But listen to what Joseph said at the end of Genesis. As for you, his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Fascinating reality. Fascinating reality. How about Job? Job's incredible. It, just for the sake of saying you turned pages in your Bible, would you go to Job? <laughs> There's just a couple things I want you to see. I don't think a lot of people read Job, um, just my experience, but they should. They should. Job chapter 1, I want to show you, and we're going to not spend a lot of time here, but I just want you to see some things. Job is certainly a believer because God calls him blameless and upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. That's God's statement concerning Job, okay? Satan came to God, as you know, and when you get to verse 11, please, but put, this is Satan getting after Yahweh, but put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to his face, to your face. The Lord said to Satan in 112, behold, all that he has is in your power, in your hand. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Obviously, we see there that God is the ultimate power. Satan has to come to him. And God is allowing Satan to do something to Job, but he has a leash. There's, there's a, a barrier, a border that he cannot cross. But he's allowing Satan to do this. And Job, if you read through Job, Job's not aware of any of this going on in the heavenlies. He's just experiencing what verse 13 and following says. Now in the day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job. Oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans attacked. Those are people doing evil acts. Okay? And took them, and they also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone escaped to tell you. Verse 16, while I was still speaking, another came and said, The fire of God, I guess lightning, fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. I alone have escaped to tell you. Verse 17, while he was still speaking, another came also and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, made a raid of the camels, and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Is God aware of this? Yes, he is. He's not doing this, but he's allowed Satan to do that which he desires to 
a level, a degree, okay? Look at verse 18. While they were still speaking, another came also. Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. Behold, a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. It fell on the young people and they died. His whole family died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Job arose and tore, tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground and worshipped and said the most incredible verse in 21. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb <clears throat> and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Look at the theology of Job. He knows who's the ultimate one in charge. And he submits to the sovereignty of God and acknowledges that God controls the universe, controls the happenings on the planet, controls the events of his life. And he says here, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's incredible, isn't it? That's incredible. Well, then if you go down to chapter 2, and we'll skip down, please, down to verse 5. Satan's going for round two here. However, verse 5, put forth your hand now, touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to his face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your power. Only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. Verse 10, skipping please. He said to his wife, her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we, notice please, verse 10, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity, sufferings, trials? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Those are intense realities. Those are truths that we're almost afraid to read. But I find great comfort to know that what I suffer is filtered through the hands of my God. I may not understand why my ten kids died. I know I wouldn't. But Job answers right. God is sovereign over suffering. And the devil's on a leash. He can only do what God allows. Is it ever God's will that his children suffer? Yes. Are we exempt from trials, tribulations, tragedies, and sorrows? No. Was this a result of, at least in the text, is this a result of Job's sin? His pride, rebellion? No. It's actually because of the opposite. <laughs> because he was righteous in his character. Now, all that to say, this general, this suffering is kind of general. All people could experience these things. But I want to finish here by going back to 1 Peter, and I want us to look at the suffering that is specifically for Christians. In 1 Peter chapter 4, I want to see the suffering that's 
reserved for Christians uniquely. We'll call it persecution. It's the result of the hatred of others, hostilities of the world because you are a Christian. Okay. Now in 1 Peter 4, we, we go to verse 12. And I want you to see the command here in verse 12 and 13 will be our hub here today. Beloved, do not be surprised. There's a command there with the negative. Beloved, stop being surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you, verse 13. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, that's the key there, Keep on rejoicing. So then the fiery ordeal of verse 12 is parallel with the the sufferings of Christ. Sufferings of Christ. Sufferings that Christ experienced. Okay? For being faithful to God. When we suffer for being faithful to God, we suffer in like manner. And it is then attributed to us that we are suffering the sufferings of Christ for being a Christian. He says in verse 12, do not be surprised that you are suffering for being a Christian. Okay? Stop being surprised. Now that's interesting because that implies that they were being surprised. They thought it strange that they should be suffering for the name of Christ. Now why would they think it's strange? Perhaps they lost track of the gospel, perhaps they were thinking, now that I've come to Christ, and now that I'm just filled with love and doing good for others, others are going to think well of me. Why would anybody do harm to me who's only doing good? Why, now that I'm a child of God, now that I'm right with God, won't God protect me? Won't God ride ahead of me? Won't God put a hedge around me? Why am I suffering? Peter says just the opposite. Hey, knock it off. Wrong attitude. Stop seeing it strange. Don't treat it like a stranger. Treat it like a friend is the idea. So then, if you think about this, we are to expect hard times, trials, tribulations, sufferings, for being faithful to Christ. Okay? Now, obviously there's certain Christian denominations that teach suffering is not the will of God ever. That if you're suffering, it's because you lack faith. Or if you're suffering, it's because you're in some great sin. Because God, this is what they say, God, it is not God's will that you be sick or poor or suffer anything in your life. And that has millions of followers, that kind of stuff. You could speak, they say, positive words as though you speak into existence your own reality. And you're suffering because you have negative thoughts. As though you have all-powerful words. Can I say just up front, that's ridiculous? Okay, that's ridiculous, right? Peter says here to stop thinking it's strange that you're suffering for Christ. Start embracing it is is another way of saying, yeah? Now, with the time we have here, look at, I just, there's there's so much said on this. I I, I got a handful of verses I want to rifle through. 
to set in your mind that will convince you that not only should you not be surprised, you should be surprised that you're not suffering. Okay, that There's so much said on this. So li- listen to these passages, please. In 1 Peter 3, 13 and 14, who is to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? The implied answer is nobody. Why would anybody do that? Next verse says this. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Verse 17. For it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. Okay? So this suffering for Christ is, is suffering for the right reason. It's suffering for doing righteousness, which is obeying the, the law, the, the commands of God. It's doing good for others. It's loving others. Because if you're doing good, you're loving. They are being, some of them were being persecuted even though they were doing good. Just like Jesus Christ, who never did nothing but good for people. And yet he was persecuted. So they're walking in his steps, you see. This persecution that we are to experience, Jesus prepared his followers for this in many different ways. Listen to Luke 9, and I'm just going to rifle through some of these things. Luke 9, 23. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself Take up his cross daily and follow me. Well, think about that. The cross in first century Palestine, first century Israel, is an instrument of torture. It's an instrument of execution. It's not a, it's not a nice little, you know, silver pennant. It's actually a place of, crucifi- of death of sacrifice. What Jesus is saying here, if you're going to follow me, you must be willing to take up your cross like I took up my cross. In other words, it's a pathway to suffering. The cross is a place of shame, self-sacrifice, and death. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, that's the path. We should be prepared for suffering. John 15, 18 through 20 In the upper room discourse, talking to his disciples, Jesus says this, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember what I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Notice what he says. If they treat the master like this, the slave should expect to be treated just as poorly, not better. Because he says, I am hated by the world. And remember I told you, the slave's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, the master, they're going to persecute you, the slave. And he's preparing them for the persecution, for the suffering, for the trials. Isn't it amazing? Think of this, please. How many people 
signed up and said yes to Jesus' invitation. I mean, in Acts, what is it, five, 5,000 people were added? At the Jerusalem church, you call it a mega church. <laughs> they all agreed to this. The first church is filled with people who said, yes, sign me up. Where's my cross? There's my cross. There I go. It's the gospel's call. Jesus is not the cherry on top to your really nice life. Jesus is your absolute sovereign who's called you down a pathway of potential martyrdom. Suffering for sure. It's amazing. It's amazing. We don't choose our martyrdom, please. He does. But the, what the text is saying, you've willingly taken up your instrument of suffering, the cross. The Apostle Paul prepared his readers for the same thing. He says in 2 Timothy 3.12, notice the necessity here. He says, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. To live godly equals persecution from the world. Because they hate Jesus, they'll hate you. In Acts 14.22, fascinating, the Apostle Paul was stoned in Lystra. A couple verses over here in my Bible, right? Um, he was left for dead. God resuscitated him. He went back into the city and preached and then backtracked to the different places where he had previously preached. He goes back here in Acts 14.22 and says this, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, saying, through many tribulations, sufferings, we must enter the kingdom of God. Suffering is, for Christ, is a gift from God. Paul wrote to the Philippians in 129, he says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but to suffer for his sake. Now, we like the first part of that. <laughs> yeah, sign me up. Faith is where eternal life comes through, right? Grant me faith, but with the faith, he's granting suffering. Suffering and faith go together because, and we'll look at it in the weeks to come, it's, it's outstanding. The pathway to glory is a pathway through thorny situations of suffering. And it's found throughout the scripture that suffering precedes glory. And so he grants us faith, which is to get you to glory, and he grants you suffering, which is the pathway to get there. They're gifts from God. Listen to Revelation 2.10. Do not fear what you're about to suffer, beloved. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested. You will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Some things to observe. Satan is the one who's being allowed to cast them into prison and cause the suffering. Jesus is calling them to be faithful unto death. He's not coming to their rescue. 
He's going to allow them to die, but he's calling them to be faithful to him to that point of death. And why? He finishes it with this. I will give you the crown of life. To live as Christ and to die as gain. The Apostle Paul, when he was converted in Acts 9, listened to what Ananias was told to say, but the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, the Apostle Paul, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. And you would have thought he said, Nah, I ain't going that way, man. I'm going this way. No, he entered in. Was the Apostle... Faithful? Yeah. Was he obedient? Yeah. And yet he's suffering. <laughs> yeah. Those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus say, I'll be persecuted. Well, Peter won't be left out. Remember, Jesus said to him in Luke twenty-two thirty-one, Simon, Simon, got some uh, information you might want to know about. Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Now, whatever sifting you like wheat is, I don't think it was meant to be pleasant, right? Especially because it's coming from Satan, okay? So, Peter, you're going to be put in the sieve, and you're going to be sifted like wheat. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Didn't you hear Peter echo or say, well, you told him no, right? <laughs> no. Jesus says, but I've prayed for you. What? I would have thought you would have, you know, said no. Can't have them. But he says, no, I have prayed for you that your faith not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Again, you see God's sovereignty, and then Satan has to come to him, seek permission. He's allowed to do what God allows him to do for God's purpose, and God prays for his faith. Paul says to Timothy, and I'm almost done here, Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me, now listen, in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. And unless you think it's super saints that are experiencing this, just the run-of-the-mill people like us, the Thessalonians, listen to what Paul writes to them in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, Therefore, we ourselves, one four actually, therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God. Why? Listen, for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. Just regular Christians. Moses is an example. Listen to this. Listen to this. You remember Moses? He was the son of Pharaoh's daughter. High position in power and government, prestige, prominence. I'm sure he lacked nothing. But listen to the text in Hebrews 11, 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. 
What did he do instead? Choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. I love that passage. He had it all, literally. But by God's grace, he was allowed to see the riches of Christ, the riches of God's promise to God's people. And he weighed it out and said, this gold of Egypt is nothing. I am willing to suffer persecution for being a child of Israel, God's people in, in this place, because I'm looking to the reward. It's not a masochist. He's not expecting to suffer just to suffer, just to say he suffered. But there's a goal. There's a reward at the end that he believed in because God promised it. Isn't that why you're willing to suffer for Christ? Isn't there a promise of eternal life? Isn't there a promise of glory that awaits you? Is it worth the suffering now? Is it worth the tribulation now? If not, you have not had a glimpse of that which awaits you. God has promised it, you see. Where else are you going to go? You have the words of eternal life, Lord. Where will I go? He uses suffering. His people will suffer. They're tools of God. So is it the will of God that his children suffer for Christ? Yes. It is his tool to fit us for glory. Moses was weaned from the earthly treasures for the heavenlies. He was convinced of this reality by grace and was willing to suffer to that end. And it was the sufferings that God used to make the break. A few more here. 1 Peter 5.10. He says, after you have suffered for a little while, notice the contrast here. After you have suffered for a little while, even if it's your entire life, it's a little while because the God, who called, the God of grace who called you to his eternal glory. Little while paralleled with eternal glory. He himself will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We're not to fear, beloved. Persecution is a gift. Suffering is a gift. Therefore, those also who suffer, listen now, listen to this. 1 Peter 4.19, those also who suffer according to the will of God. There is suffering according to the will of God. What shall you do? Entrust your souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Entrust is a banking term. I'm placing my soul like a man places his gold to the caretaking of a, of a security box. Who is our security? Who is our, who is our watchman but God himself? Peter is saying, when I'm suffering according to the will of God for being a Christian, I entrust my soul to his care. How do you show that? The verse goes on to say, in doing what is right. Do you see? That's fascinating. Listen now. 
doing what is right. You continue to do that which got you in trouble in the first place, which was doing good in the name of Jesus Christ. Persecution comes against you, suffering and trials, tribulations. You don't pull back and cease from doing good and right. You keep doing what's good and right, and that's how you entrust your soul to God. You don't compromise. You don't shrink back. You keep doing. In fact, you press in. You press harder. Serving God. Serving Christ. A couple things to remember. I promise to let you go. (laughs) As hard as it is for me. If we're going to live for his glory through suffering, trials, we need to understand what we've been saying here, that suffering is a reality, and we should not be surprised. And when suffering comes, we submit to God and entrust our souls to him in remaining faithful, doing what he's called us to do, loving our neighbor, doing good, speaking his truth. And these, we need to remember then also the awesome truth and promise that's to every believer. Psalm 23 obviously is a very familiar, famous text. The Lord is my shepherd. Okay? Verse 4 of that text is very dear to me lately. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Beloved, persecution is, is, if you're faithful, is in your life. God sovereignly governs it. But he is your shepherd who walks with you. You're not alone. The shadow of death is a dark place. In my mind, as I think about that, it's an intimidating place. It's a dangerous place. And yet, we are not to fear because he's with us. He's never not with you, beloved. Ever. And the glorious ending of Romans 8 is where I want to fix this. Listen to these glorious words that I know you know well. But in light of the suffering and persecution that's coming To the believer, listen to what Paul writes. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation? Uh, No. How about distress? Nope. Ah, persecution. That won't either. Famine? Nakedness? Peril? Sword, maybe. No. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. That's martyrdom. We are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Now listen, but contrast, this is incredible. But in all these things just mentioned, distress, persecution, martyrdoms, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Martyrdom does not destroy. Martyrdom does not defeat. We overwhelmingly conquer through martyrdom because of Christ. Isn't that glorious? That makes you nine foot tall and bulletproof. 
He goes on to say this, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced, I like conviction, man, that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able, has the power to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. So then, to conclude this up, if we are to live for the glory of God through tribulation, then we must understand, be certain of the security of your salvation. We must understand the reality of suffering, to treat it not as a stranger but familiar companion on God's pathway to eternal glory. So then let us be faithful to serve our King with zeal in a hostile place. Let us take every opportunity to speak His truth to this lost world. And let us echo the words of Acts 5, 40 through 41. They took his advice, that is Gamaliel. And after calling the apostles in, they flogged them. That's whipped them. When's the last time you were whipped for your faith? Me either. He flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And then released them. Now listen. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. That's the attitude we are to have if we are to endure in a manner worthy of his name. Amen? So let us embrace the trials. Let us embrace the suffering. Let us embrace that which our sovereign Lord is going to bring our way. Next week we'll look at the role of suffering and, and the response will be the week after. But I trust that this is somewhat encouraging. And I guess at the end of the day, let us trust God enough to have his way. Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you are sovereign over our lives and we can trust you. Forgive us, Father, of our doubts. Forgive us, Lord, of our unbelief at times. Forgive us, Lord, of our resentment of troubles and trials. Forgive us, Lord, of our complaining. Would you help us to submit to you in every area, to embrace the trials and sufferings you bring our way, knowing that you are using them for our good and for your glory. If anyone here, Father, is not in your family, has not repented and has never trusted in you and is not trusting you, I pray you do a work in their heart now. Bring them to yourself. We'll give you the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.